0: Welcome to Knot Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we dive into today's show, I want to be sure that you know about my online creative community, The Heroine's Knot. Every week, we explore a new heroine's tale and search out its archetypal and personal meaning. This is the space to deepen your own creativity and build lasting relationships with wise souls seeking both individual growth growth and collective healing for our society and for our more-than-human world. Learn more at my website, MarisaGouti.com. Season 3, Episode 6, In the Company of the Banshee. My guest for today's episode is Cuiva Nicgillernot. Cuiva is originally from County Kildare. She's always had a keen interest in Irish folklore and mythology and grew up listening to her father tell stories in Irish about the Far Gortach the Banshee. She attended Irish language medium schools and graduated from University of Galway with a BA and MA in Modern Irish. She has over 10 years of teaching experience as an adjunct professor and recently earned a certificate in teaching Irish to adults from Maynooth University. Quiva currently teaches Irish language and literature undergraduate courses at Lehman College, City University, New York, and Irish language classes for adults at the Irish Arts Center in Manhattan, as well as the New York Irish Center in Queens. She teaches one-to-one classes, too. Her clients include families of Irish diplomats working at the UN and Irish consulate, and in the past, she's taught Irish language courses at Fordham University, Manhattan College, and through Rosetta Stone. In February 2020, she received a Top 40 Under 40 Award from the Irish Echo. Cuiva is a regular guest on Irish language radio shows, on BBC, RTE, Radio Nageltegta, and featured in the Irish Film and Television Academy Award-nominated documentary series GAA USA, broadcast on Tichy Cahar. In June, Cuiva will be launching her own Irish language classes online and in person in Manhattan. I am so excited to have Cuiva here with us on the show today, as is our way on not work storytelling. We first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore all of the ways that it still matters and resonates. So Cuiva, will you tell us a story?
1: Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I'd love to tell you about the Banshee, which is a hot topic at the moment because of the movie the Banshees of Inish Aran. So first of all I'm going to give a background to the Banshee and then I'm going to get into the story. So where I've sourced all this information is buchus.ie which is the Irish word for heritage and it's a fantastic resource. It's free, it's funded by the government and it's a digitized collection of the folklore collection at the University College Dumba. And that is where the likes of Naomi Gommel source a lot of inspiration for their poetry and other literary works. So Banshee, or another name for the Banshee, is the bibe, which I've never heard of. And I came across this during my research. People say she is a woman dressed in white and she has long hair and she's always combing it. She is heard before anyone dies. So, when you would hear her, you would think she would be miles away, and then the cry she would leave would shake every place around. And it's this lonely, wailing cry. So, people say that it is all the people with O's and mocks before their names that she follows, which would mean that men, because with Irish, O is the masculine version of a last name, as is mock, whereas me nee and Nick, like my name, are the female versions. So the story I'm going to talk about is one from, like I said, dhukas.ie. And it's an interesting one to me because it talks about America too, which I like because obviously I'm based here and your audience is too. So there is various stories obviously about this banshee. And if you look on dhukas.ie or if you do a Google search, you'll find thousands of them and there's different variations depending on what part of the country you're looking at and things like that. So the one that I'm looking at is from Ballyconne school and what that translates as is a school collection. So I'm sure you're familiar with the project that the government started to collect folklore in the 40s and 50s where they would send school children around to shanachie so storytellers houses So the school children with the best handwriting, the neatest handwriting, to record all of these stories so that we'd be able to preserve a rich folklore. So this one is from County Galway, Bracklune. And so I said that the banshee, you know, signifies death. She's also a fairy woman. So we hear a lot about fairies in Irish folklore. And it's said that she used to follow many families and that a mournful cry would be heard near the house a night or two before one of the family died. And we see this in the Banshees of So it's also said that whether the person would die near the place or not, that the cry would be heard near the old home, which is the interesting part of this story. Because like I said, there's a part of it that happens in America. So there are other stories about the Banshee being seen at the Riverside washing clothes. And singing a mournful song as she washed. And it was also said that this was another sure sign of death. Now, if memory serves, there was a scene in the Banshees of Enishiron that this happened, which is really interesting. So this is a story I heard about her now. This is what is counted for in Lucas. So this is the the child writing it down. So there was a certain family in Balnastack. And came to Galway, and the Banshee was always following them. One time, a boy out of the family went to America, and he was not long there when he fell seriously ill. One day when the rest of the family were doing their work out in the fields, Banshee kept crying beside them all day. One night, as they were sitting around the fire, a shadow passed by, the door with a bag in its hand, and that was the very night and the very time the boy died the end so it's very short and sweet
0: I feel like I almost want you to read it again there's part of me that was like just about ready to get settled into a story and it ends so quickly but of course that seems sort of perfect in the sense that it was a young boy's life and it ended too soon there's almost poetry just in its brevity right there
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Quiva, thank you for bringing the banshee to us. Like, I feel like this is to, it's such a beautiful opening just for all the ways we'll explore in our conversation. And of course, it's also timely with the banshees of Ensharan coming out right now. And all of a sudden, this word is on people's lips. That it's in American parlance, right? I think we hear screaming like a banshee more than you think about it really being about of the folk tradition and what it all really means. But I think there's a There's a romance and a resonance in that word that come even just from hearing Banshee, hearing what before you even know all of its meaning and all that's contained within it.
1: Absolutely. And I feel like it also kind of touches on the whole anti-feminism thing Mm -hmm. that particularly was a big thing hundreds of years ago.
0: Yeah.
1: And that it presented the woman as this crazy person.
0: Right. Hundreds of years ago, a couple of decades ago, yesterday. <laughs> <No> right. <days>. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> right. Because, of course, we're recording this at this moment when it's this Bridget's Day moment right now in Ireland, where this whole sense of at last, Bridget's being celebrated. There's the matron saint beside the patron saint. Oh, it only took us 1,500 years since, since her birth, it only took us, only took 100 years since the the founding of the nation or so. And here it is. So I just, I feel like those echoes are always with us and always in, in this story and elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. So knowing that you've gotten the story from Dukas, I've loved that as a resource I've, with my guests and I have pulled from that for stories in the past as well. What did you grow up with in terms
1: of stories of the Banshee and, and knowledge of who she was? It's a great question. My dad would tell me stories about the Banshee and the Faragirtha, so the man of famine or man of hunger, and the fair girthuk, which would be famine grass or hunger grass. And at the time, I thought my dad was just being silly and it was his generation. So I'm the youngest of four and my father is elderly now. He's in his early 80s. So I just thought it was one of those things that elderly people say. It was only when I was in college studying folklore, attending classes by Dr. Liz that I realized everything I grew up with was A, true, B, people appreciated it, because I didn't, I took it for granted, and C, I didn't have to study for the exam because I knew all of the <laughs> stories by heart. So the band, she it was like, Dad just always presented her in some ways as this eerie figure, and in other ways, mysterious and powerful and supportive Mm. so I never really knew where I stood with her until I watched the Banshees of Inna Sharon and I suddenly felt scared again and on edge during the whole film like who's gonna Mm. die every time she comes that's bad news Mm. and she was presented as a scary character I think and very mysterious and ominous yeah it's interesting and dad would say that she would follow people around too and families and, st- and things like that and he would talk about the fairies a lot and it, it's not just him I've spoken to my older cousins about it in their 40s and early 50s and they I think believe strongly in it you know yeah and the fairy folk and you're from Kildare is that what your family where you yeah are? yeah I'm from Kildare but my parents aren't my father's from Galway okay So he grew up speaking Irish and Irish was the first language of my grandparents. Right. And then you went back to NUI Galway
0: for your studies Mm -hmm. too, right? So that's correct. Well, it's so interesting. You know, I I posted this on Facebook because I become this person who was the first one folks text after they watch the Banshees Uh of Inisharan because they need to somehow process it or just report like I got all the way through it, but also just into, you know, say what they're thinking. But I realized that was a film that made so much more sense on the second viewing because at least then I was watching with between my fingers at certain points oh god I just said fingers (laughs) you did
1: (laughs) no spoilers
0: (laughs) (laughs) no spoilers but it's an important word in the story banshees and that and I feel like that is so it was so indicative of my relationship with what I know and understand of Irish folklore and what I've studied over the years is that sense of being so drawn in and a little bit repelled, and frightened, and excited, and intrigued, and having every emotion all at once. And that sounds so similar to your experience.
1: Yeah, very true. Very, very true. Like Dad would talk about, they would play cards a lot when he was a kid. I mean, people didn't have TVs back then. And once they had gathered all of the potatoes, And also the cattle ready to be taken to the market the next day. And they were all stayed up late playing cards. And apparently there was this ferry truck that came during the night and took the cattle and the potatoes. And there was no tire tracks. Um, Everyone was there. They saw it. And it just vanished. And to this day, dad believes this. And that freaked me out so much as a kid. Yeah. So there was no wailing, but it was the fairy folk. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's interesting.
0: (laughs) Well, there's just that sense of, you know, we we know, especially with folklore, we're always dancing between the oral tradition and what's been written down. Mm. And that sense of, you know, once, I mean, I've read so many of these sources and these stories and like, oh, I've nodded. I'm like, oh, that's real. Hearing you say it and say, no, you've heard this from your father who was in the room playing cards, mm. presumably looking out the window. Right. It's just that reminder of like, no, these are these stories want to continue to be alive and be spoken and they hit you in a different way mm. than if they weren't collected in that book of folklore over there on the bookshelf. Exactly.
1: Yeah. It's true because his generation would have been those school children going around collecting these stories, you know? So it's interesting. And then when I was studying Irish language cinema. We looked at Iha Hanukkah, the first Irish talkie. I don't know if you're familiar with it.
0: Hmm. No, say more.
1: So it was discovered in, I believe it was one of the universities in America. It was Harvard in wow. the last 10 years. <laughs> so Iha Hanukkah translate to a night of storytelling. Hmm. and in this short film we have women from the iron islands that do the keening so there was outrage at the fact that they were acting in this and performing the keening because it's only supposed to happen when someone dies they thought it was terrible bad luck and it was just it was a big thing at the time and then they felt they were cursed and So it's really interesting. I found that fascinating. And it's really, it's great, beautiful film. It's worth watching. Mm. I think you can get it on YouTube. And it's by uh, Robert Flaherty.
0: I'll get the links from you. we will put them in the show notes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great. But if you look into it, Maggie Duran is the, um, which is a huge Iron Island name, Duran. She is the Keener in it. And so Keening and the Banshee kind of go together, right? It's interesting how we have such a strong connection with death in Ireland and funerals. And it's only when I came to America a couple of years ago talking to an Irish American at work who wouldn't be the typical Irish American I'm used to working with, which would be someone like yourself that's very connected to their lineage, history, and culture, somebody who's not really familiar with it. And she was shocked how there was such a big turnout for her wife's mother, his funeral. And I was like, no, that's normal. That's what we do in Ireland. Like, right. we joke about my dad's pastime being gone to funerals, and he travels the breadth of Ireland for them. But it's true. And then the death notice is being read out on local radio, mm-hmm. which is so unusual, but it's just a thing. Right. And we just like, I studied that in college with another great folklorist Dr. O'Haley. So he did the translation of Peg Serra's book, Mm -hmm. Pork O'Haley. So we did a a whole course on tradition of funerals and stuff in Ireland. And, and, you know, I didn't realize that it's not a big thing in other countries. Attended funerals in America, and I was shocked at how small they are and how it's just kind of done and dusted. Whereas in Ireland, you don't leave the body alone. Mm -hmm. It's a proper kind of party a lot of dancing and laughing and jokes and alcohol and food and, and I didn't experience that as much here, it was just different.
0: Right. Well that sense that of course death is part of life and America does a darn good job of making sure to forget that in every way possible. It's a dark joke to make, but my husband was, he's been trying to settle his, his, his deceased mother's estate for two years now and calling and this and that. And I looked at him and said, well honey, you know, so few people die it makes sense that you should have to go through so many ho- hoops and it's so complicated to deal with this. But it's because the denial culture around death is so strong. It's not just in our rituals, it's in our bureaucracies. And mm-hmm. what does that do to the lives of the living? No one can even talk about it freely, how hard it is, not just to grieve someone, but to do the paperwork. And you know, at all, at every level, it just becomes so challenging. But gosh, it's so interesting in so many ways, I'm the first of my family in a long time for Irishness to have been particularly important. I kind of called this in when I was 13. We were talking a lot about films. In my case, it was watching Far and Away with Tom Cruise. That rather oh, wow. not particularly brilliant film, but it was great <laughs> when I was 13. I Changed yeah. the course of my life in the sense that, you know, there I was five years later at the Irish Studies Department of Boston College, but my mother's funeral her wake, people stood in line for two hours outside the church to get in. And of course she died young and unexpected. And it was, it was a shock. So it was why people I think were even more likely to show up and be there. But I remember people there just marveling at like, there are so many people here. And it was just that sense of, I guess that, that spirit was alive in us or in our community at that time. But This whole topic of how death is not the same thing from one country to another, from one culture to another, and how it's been transformed in just a few generations, perhaps, with people who've emigrated here is really remarkable.
1: Mm. And it's interesting how the story this man goes to America, and even though he's so far away, his family are still aware of what happened, and the Banshee is still connected. Right. It's eerie so bring
0: us back to the vive was that that that's the other bit of banshee lore you said you just came across in your research
1: Mm -hmm. so this story says that the man was coming home one night and he met the so he made a shortcut across the wood and he came out at a crossroad and the vibe was there before him Yeah, that was the ending. What an anticlimax.
0: Well, Dukas didn't always do the best job. of It was collecting folklore, but not necessarily collecting really (laughs) satisfying stories, I found.
1: (laughs) No, you're right about that, too. Yeah, they're usually very brief. I feel like I do want to look more into the Bible now, and I'll go down some rabbit hole. Yeah. I thought it was interesting how it talks about the woman dressed in white. I don't remember mm-hmm. if she appeared in white in *And She's Been a Sharon*, did she? Can you recall?
0: No, she was always in the black cloak. She really kind of had that sort of right. yeah, that stereotypical old Aaron woman look to her.
1: Right. I've never seen her presented as that. And what I found interesting was when I recommended to one of my students to watch it. We had just talked about Peg Sayers the week before in class, and she told me it reminded me of Peg Sayers, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> is presented as this like negative image and the whole point of us watching this documentary about peg series was reclaiming right. what she was because so many people in ireland i don't know if you're aware but they're scarred by this mm-hmm. yep memoir that was compulsory re- reading for a lot of people older than myself. It wasn't on the curriculum when I did it. But, okay. Um, so yeah, I'm about maybe 10
0: this. years older than you. So when I was over there studying, you just, someone would just say the word and I could just see all of my friends going, Peg. and it was like, <laughs> what they said, this internal crumpling of like, and I was like, I'm so sorry about this trauma, but I think Irish language is great. I would love to be able to read that. And they would just sort of look at me blankly and just tell me I didn't understand.
1: <laughs> right. And it's like asking a group of English learners to read Ulysses. Mm. Interesting comparison. If they can't have a conversation with you about themselves and just a casual conversation, how can you expect them to analyze Ulysses and understand it? Right, right. So, this is what they were asked to do. Huh. And also, the subject matter is very grim. It's set after the famine. Mm-hmm. A lot of immigration, a lot of debt. So there's that. Teenagers, it's not really positive reading, right. and old things are usually not appealing to teenagers either. Or I know for me, they weren't anyway. So there's all of that, and they were trying to change our perspective, or people were anyway, when they made this documentary last year, which is great and reclaim it and look at the feminist aspect of it, and all of those great things and the skills she had, which were telling stories and most importantly the humor she had, which isn't presented. Mm. But you could get the book now, like I said, Cora O'Haley and Boo Allenfist translated it to English. And I think it's great if people could look at it and re-engage with it with a different perspective. Right. And try and let go of that trauma. Mm. Because it's different when you're learning a language and looking at folklore when you're older, and you can appreciate it. And there's that hunger in you to learn more. Whereas when you're a kid, you're not really given that freedom.
0: Right. And that sense of, you know, kind of to return back, when we're thinking about the way your dad's stories about sitting around playing cards and looking out the window, opposed to saying, okay, if I get through this dry old book of folklore, that perhaps the stories in the same way of, of your man there at going to the crossroads, and she reached it before him, And that was the entire story because these weren't written down to be great sweeping epics that have a beginning, middle and end and satisfy our craving for what a story should be there. Instead, it's a little snippet in time that perhaps is a way to inquire and go deeper. But when you're young, you want to have a a good story that seems to have some sort of satisfying conclusion or message or a thrill. Then you feel like you have a resolution to it.
1: Well, I guess the message with that second story of Mount the Crossroads was you can't avoid her. She will get you. Right. There's no escaping death and she will find you. And I feel like that's also kind of what it was like in the Banshees of Innocerran. Like she's always there and you can't miss her. Right,
0: right. And of course, if she was there before him, presumably, and then he died and there was no more story for him to tell. Right, right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, I would love to hear a bit more from you as student of folklore and just how you hold these stories, how you really see them as being, what drew you to them and why it felt so important for you to, you used to have started these studies yourself at 18 and you said you didn't have to do any of the reading for for the exams because you'd lived it so much, but what drew you to them and made you realize how current and they wanted to stay and be?
1: Thanks. connection to the land Mm. and a lot of people talk about this yeah but for me that really is what it was it was like okay i never met my grandparents on either side they all passed and to know that they all spoke irish that they had these really rich stories and it shows to me like if we look at the far girth or the fair girth it is about the famine and that mm. that still lives in the land, you know. There's no escaping it. So the thing about the fair girthook is if you walk across a field and you suddenly have this great pang of hunger, it's because you're walking somewhere where someone from the famine died mm. or an unbaptized child was buried oh, and dad would tell me these stories or suddenly you're lost in a familiar field and you can't find your way out which i thought was crazy but so to get out you have to take your coat off turn it inside out and put it back on again mm-hmm. and always carry out cakes in your pocket is one thing so it, if you meet this beggar, this so a man an a man wandering looking for food or money that you can give him some sustenance. so i just like that it it doesn't let us forget the past. Yeah, it's acknowledging these unbaptized babies. It's acknowledging the pain, I guess, that women felt with caught death and that, and um, acknowledging that a lot of people died during the famine and not to forget that. And also, I felt like folklore explains mental health and how we didn't understand it at the time, but it gave us a way of talking about it. Yeah, so. When we say someone's away with the fairies, that's really what it means is that at that time we thought that what we were seeing was a changeling, and that that person's solar spirit was taken by the fairies, and what was left was this changeling who was depressed, or whatever other mental illness would be upon them. Right. Or if a child died suddenly of cot death, again it was like the fairies took it because mm-hmm. we didn't know how else to explain it. Right. And I just think that's fascinating because like worldwide we have different folklore um so all cultures engaged with this which is interesting but i don't know if they all still hold it you know some obviously do right right i just
0: love the way you offer that in that reminder of you know i think there's something of a truism now you know we tell our stories in order to heal And that sometimes is offered in a very, very modern context. You know, it it isn't just we tell our stories of our lives now or that we look back to these ancient stories in order to heal the past. It's that everyone has always been doing that all along. This isn't something we just discovered in our modern minds. It's that these stories have always been a way to healing and to understanding and to giving context around the great unfathomable sorrows, whether it's in the broadest sense of the famine or whether it's just that one mother's grief, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Completely. Like if you think of things like schizophrenia or that, like that would make sense. Someone walking around wailing, right? Or a man that's hungry and just doesn't seem to be with it. Someone wailing is, I guess, someone who's traumatized by their child dying for no reason or people dying at sea, different things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah it just kind of in Irish culture we're not used to talking openly about things but this was a way to talk about it indirectly right Right. in the community Mm. and have someone listen to you even though typically the storytellers were male if we look at Peg Sayers obviously that's a great example of a female storyteller Mm -hmm. and she was given the space to talk about things right
0: when you were speaking before about the film of the Keeners on, air, on the Aran Islands, and then I was thinking about that sense of that kind of crime of performing this ritual in a performative way and offering For it money. For money, yes. Okay. So not only because some documentary filmmaker came in and asked, it was also transactional. So there's mm. so many layers of how I can see that having such weight and difficulty to it. And then looking at the same time and saying, oh, but of course, Peg was herself a performer, not in order for us to analyze her across the centuries and across the continents, but that was her job, her calling as storyteller and keeper of stories. And it's just interesting to sort of have these two different one woman into a group of women and bringing them into conversation in the space of our conversation today about how stories were, were shared and offered to others and how keening was not necessarily meant to be shared in quite
1: the same way and yet it was right it was a ritual and it was sacred mm. so god forbid a record it on this video thing that we don't know what it does and b earn money for it right and do it at a time and someone hasn't died is just so so bad right and it's interesting how People, I think, took for granted in some ways the talent that Peg had because when she wrote her memoir, it was at a time during, Irish, during the Irish language revival where we were trying to establish a modern literature because we didn't have one. Right. All we had were the Book of Kells, things like that, ancient manuscripts, Middle Irish, like Shana, that popular folk tale. But we didn't have a modern Irish literature so the quickest way to establish that would be to ask people to write memoirs. So mm-hmm. she was one of those talented people, but then it spawned a generation of people that weren't as talented as her. Mm-hmm. And it was seen as a quick way to make money. And we ended up with a lot of not so great memoirs.
0: Oh, fascinating. Because they weren't well
1: written. Interesting. So I think it it really is important to acknowledge that she had this special talent as did the likes of Thomas Thomas Cripon, mm-hmm. you know, the Island man. Right. Right. It's not, everyone can do it, Right. but we thought that we could back then because we needed money. <laughs>
0: right. And yeah, that phenomenon of, Hey, we've always been storytellers. Let's give it a try. Right. It doesn't necessarily always work. You know, UCD's Folklore Department, they have a great podcast, which the name of it's escaping me at this moment. But I heard an episode they did about Peg and and kind of perhaps it was around the time of the documentary being released. But I recall one of the speakers talking about how some of Peg's humor didn't really come through because she was dictating a lot of this story to her son, right? And they said-
1: Which is what was common.
0: Right, but some of the- Because they didn't
1: know how to read or write. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know of any- person who actually wrote their memoir themselves. There was always a heavy-handed editor involved, mm-hmm. like Robin Flair with Tommaso Cripon. With Peg, it was her son, Right.
0: And what I had heard in, in this when this person was speaking about this was how aspects of what would have been very much a woman's story and woman's experiences were automatically edited out, either because he had no interest in them or he was squeamish about hearing his mom talk about such things. And so obviously Absolutely. there must be some word of mouth that sort of says,
1: Oh, we've got Peg, but not the best of Peg on the page. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because we have these recordings and I think we have some film footage too. Okay. Right. That had the the real, the real juice of who she was, I guess. Right. right. Yeah. That, that was definitely left out, which is a shame because that's why we have this false image of her being dry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Right. And super negative. Yeah. So.
0: Your experience in living in the States, so much of it is about teaching the Irish language. How, what's your experience around sharing Irish folklore and Irish stories? Has that been
1: part of your work here too? It has. I try to introduce it because I don't see the point in learning just the language. For me, when you know the language, it gives you an insight into Irish culture, especially our traditions that you're not going to get with English. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: why not engage with place names you know I I talk about that I talk about folklore especially when we have things like Bridget's Day St. Patrick's Day Halloween all of these kind of things I try and introduce it and it's I feel like there's not many resources out there like courses unless you do a college degree to look at these so I think it's important to talk about them and then you get stories from your students too about their own families and Traditions they had, on it, and I find it really interesting,
0: yeah, absolutely. And what do you find is bringing people to study Irish with you? I'm sure, is it a, is it a kind of a spectrum of reasons, or do, do certain things keep shining up to the forefront?
1: Yeah, a lot of people tell me their parents didn't speak it and were very anti Irish language, typically because they came at a time when it was illegal in Ireland or we were still struggling and um, economically so obviously Irish was seen as going backwards to poverty and English was seen as upward mobility so why would you engage with the language you know and they would be told that they didn't speak Irish and then they realized well all those words that I heard my grandmother say were Irish and now realizing you know things like this which I thought was fascinating and I can't imagine, because for me, my dad was so proud of the language and my grandmother, who had a sister. And so my dad's aunt lived in Westchester. Every Sunday, they would speak on the phone in Irish. And my dad's cousin would recall them talking this gibberish because it obviously wasn't passed on to her. Again, I guess she immigrated to America. She married an American, did quite well for themselves. and. I guess she didn't see the value in passing on to her child right. because of that otherness, I would assume, because of what was going on at the time. I mean, if she was still alive, my dad's cousin would be 90-something like Right. And right. Um, So back then, it wasn't appreciated with everything going on in America at the time. Yeah. And I'm sure so many immigrants had that and maybe still do. And I, I find it hard when I speak to immigrants here. From, that are native Irish speakers and they're forgetting some of it right. or basic grammar. And I'm like, wow, I hope that never happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, as we start to land our conversation, you know, we've, we've covered so much territory, which is sort of the joy of being able to have those conversations and see where we go. Are there any other thoughts, ideas of the Banshee or other bits of folklore that you want to share with us?
1: There's so many great stories the fairy mounds i find really interesting because even in modern day ireland when people build a house on land and things start going wrong it's believed that it's on a fairy mound and people genuinely believe this mm-hmm. and i just find that so interesting like who do you have to talk to to find out if it's fairy mound and how do you resolve this? Like they say to leave food and all of that, but it's just, mm-hmm. it's interesting. And I love how we're reconnecting with folklore in film now. A lot of Irish language cinema now is inspired by folklore, such as The Secret of Cows, mm-hmm. and also Aaron Namara, which is Song of the Sea, which is a beautiful film and it looks at the selfies and things like that. So it's nice that we're returning to that. And even if we look at something as like plastic Irish as Derby and the little people, I now realize that that was all about the sluishie, the, the fairy folk. So it was the leprechauns are the fairy folk. It's the same thing. Right. And that that's the right. whole thing is based on an Irish folk tale.
0: And isn't there a banshee in that? Yeah, there is, yeah. I will never forget the one image I have uh, in my head of her like flying at me when I was probably four years old watching that cartoon and definitely never wanted to see it again. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love I that that's kind of woven into our conversation because that's still the first thing I think of every time I hear Banshee. Yeah. And I had a beloved black cat named Banshee mm-hmm. for 14 beautiful years. Wow. So I miss her terribly. Maybe she's, she's here a bit.
1: What well, I love about the word is in English it kind of means this scary spirit you know whereas what really was it and the fact that it originates from an Irish word that's what I love about it it's like okay well if you understand what ban means which is woman then you can figure it out so there's that richness that it gives you about Irish culture that you're not going to get from English and if you only understand English you're not going to understand it
0: as we land this conversation, pun horrible and intended, you know knowing that both you and I are in New York, we're a few, about 100 miles apart as we record this. And you know as you're thinking as you're mentioning, you know people not wanting to build on a fairy mound. And knowing, of course that we live on the lands that was you know held by the Lenape people for you know time immemorial before colonization and European migration over to this space, I'm constantly in conversation or trying to be with the land here in the Hudson Valley and wondering what were their stories? Who were there? What was their equivalent of the banshee, of the fairy folk, of the unseen world? And we all may be living upon a, a version of a fairy mound here or there. You know, the island of Manhattan, I'm sure, had so many stories beyond what we could ever understand. And I think it's one of the beautiful things about the Irish tradition is there's still ways like, okay, you could probably go to ask somebody. Someone might remember that field and this part of town over in this county, but it always comes back to ultimately we just get to ask the land. As you said, that's what drew you to folklore. When we have the language, we have the stories, thank the gods, thank the goddesses we do. And then we also have the land when all else fails because ultimately the land never fails us.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's great that so many people like yourself now are acknowledging that we're on Stolen Land. Yeah. And it's something that I want to dig in too. But it does sound like it's harder to find that than it will be in Ireland. Maybe I'm wrong. But I'm fascinated by that because, you know, there's poets, Irish poets, that have looked at the connection between the Native Americans and the Irish and the folk tale around yeah. it folklore around it. and one of them is a poet from Belfast whose name escapes me right now but I read a collection of poetry that he wrote, Scarrow McLaughlin is his name and it was interesting the comparisons he drew. Yeah we're in an
0: enormous continent of course and there are certain places where I think Indigenous tradition obviously and storytelling is much more interconnected with that land and where they are. Here we are in the Northeast where now the Lenape people are in Minnesota and Michigan and Ontario, nowhere near, you know, the mm-hmm. salt marshes and rivers and oceans that were, were theirs and would have been their stories. But that's an entirely other conversation that I, again, yeah, how do we keep yearning for it out loud enough, yearning for what we don't know and not to, I don't think in that yearning, I don't think we can recreate it, but at least it begins, it gives us new openings into remembering that, you know, and I'm always aware of this myself. I source my stories from a country that is 3000 miles away that no one in my family has lived in for five generations. It's strange and mysterious and miraculous all at the same time. And what does it mean to bring them here and offer them here? So I love that you're here and offering the stories that you grew up with for us and for all of your wonderful students who get to learn from you. It was such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much, Kweva. So
1: where can people find you and a little bit more about your work? I'm currently setting up my website. So watch this space. But if you just reach out to me by email guivenicg at gmail.com so c-a-o-i-m-h-e-n-i-c-g at gmail.com I'm on twitter as g-a-e-n-y-c Instagram and Facebook and yeah I'd love to to chat to people and I'd also love to offer your listeners 20% off if anyone wants to join any of my small group classes or private classes that I'm going to launch in June both in person and online we can learn about the Banshee if you want and more folklore.
0: Absolutely. Oh, well, Quiva, I will link to all of that. As your website evolves, I will go back and update the show notes so that people can find you. Cause of course this conversation will ripple forth hopefully because the fascination with the Banshee, I think only increases over time and intrigues people even more, um, as is the way of the Irish language as well. So. Thank you so much, Karamaget. Thank you for being here today.
1: Karamaget, pain,
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform, and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love. And your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through Season 3 and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagoudi.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called the College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.